You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Good morning and welcome to Advent. Um, If you guys are like me, you didn't grow up celebrating Advent. It's become one of my favorite seasons of the year. Um, And this is no fault on my family or on my religious tradition growing up, but for me growing up, Christmas was one day a year. That was it. And it, was, it came, and it went, and we went on about our lives. Um, and I also lived in San Diego, so the weather didn't change. You know, it was just one day was the same as the other. Um, but the season of Advent is important, like we've already expressed. It's this season of waiting. Um, you may not be familiar with this as well, but today is the beginning of the Christian calendar. So happy new year. Happy new year. What's interesting about the, the, the Christian calendar throughout the year is that it doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. We don't jump right into the day that he was born, but we start off with four weeks of waiting. We start off with four weeks of, of anticipation, four weeks of expectation and hope and, and longing for his coming. And, and this is what we're celebrating here as, as, as a church, and I love doing this corporately together. I feel like we as a church family get to celebrate and long for this coming of Jesus together for this extended period of time in Advent. And so today, I love it. We get to start off the series, Finding Family, the Christmas Story According to Matthew. So if you're, if you're curious, yes, we're just going to be reading through the book of Matthew, Right? Um, the first two chapters, the way that Matthew um, tells this story of the coming Christ. And today's sermon, I've titled today's sermon for you, The Past, Present, and Future of God's Family. The Past, Present, and Future of God's Family. Uh, And I want to start off with a little bit of crowd participation. You guys with me? You guys awake? Ready? The rain hasn't got you totally asleep yet? I got two cups of coffee today, so I'm rolling, ready to go. Um, you know, there's, there's anybody, are you guys literature people? Anybody like to read? Five of you? Good. Um, some of these you will have had to have read, so you'll know, you'll know what we're talking about a little bit. Uh, but there are some stories, there are some books that just begin with these like powerful, compelling, or like iconic opening lines, right? And the best of which, you read that first line and you're like, oh, you're hooked. And, and you've got to keep on reading. Um, the, the kind of writing that instantly makes you hungry for more. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna share five. I'm gonna see if you guys can guess what books these are from. You guys ready? All right, the first one, super low bar. This will be easy for obvious reasons. The first one, the book starts off like this. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Star Wars. Wars. Not true. Second guess. You do not get a candy cane. Um, What book is this? The Hobbit. There you go, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, Number two, I only really need to probably read the first few words of this one. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Now that may not make you wanna read the rest of the book, unless you're a four on the Enneagram like me, and then you're like, yeah, I'm so in. What book is this? Tale of Two Cities, Dickens. 
Um, here's one. Now, this might be a little bit more obscure, but I guarantee you, if you had to go to school in like the American education system, the public schools, you had to read this book. When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I only had two things on my mind, Paul Newman and a ride home. Outsiders. Somebody give those people a high five. Those two people that just called it, you get, you get high fives. Jesse, did you get that? All right, man. It's probably just you, you just recently read it. Us old people, it was like so long ago we forgot. The Outsiders. Um, here's a classic one. You probably know the movie. You may not know the book, but this is how the book starts. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. Anybody? Even my own wife didn't get this one, and that's okay. That's okay. This is The Princess Bride. Oh, I know. Now you all want to go. Go use up your Audible credits, download that book, and start listening to it. It's fabulous. Final, final one. This might be one of my favorite opening lines of any book ever. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There we go. High fives by C.S. Lewis. Now, we just had our Advent reading for the day. And the, and the opening line of the story of Matthew, which also happens to be the opening line to the entire New Testament, is arguably not such a line. I love the Bible, right? My favorite book, hands down, I'll just say that. Not the most compelling, right? This is how Matthew starts off. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then... Thank you so much, Cindy, for doing the reading today. Then we actually get to read, then we actually get to read like two and a half minutes of all of those names and people and like, what is, what is the point of all this? And so if, if we read that first line and thought, you know what, I really don't know if I want to read this, by about verse 10, we're like, yeah, I really don't want to read this. And you just, and if you're like me, I'm just being honest with you, it's so easy to skip, right? You just scroll a little faster and you're on, right? If you're having the Bible read to you, you just like speed up the you know, two times speed, right? And you're through it. But what I wanna suggest is maybe this opening line is more compelling than we think it is. Maybe this opening section to the entire New Testament is more compelling than we think at first glance. And one thing that's interesting that it tells us is that we're not actually at the beginning of the story at all. I was really struck by this the last few weeks as I've been meditating on it. It suddenly feels like we're not at the beginning of a story. We're somehow plopped down in the middle of something that's already been going on for generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. Like, whoa, what have we, what have we stepped into here? A lot's already been going on. And so today we're not gonna skim past it. We're gonna spend some time with this genealogy of Jesus. And I'm not going to read it to you again. We're using these as the Advent readings this week. But I do want to start with a question, which is why begin with a backstory at all? Like if you're Matthew and you're wanting to write the story of Jesus, why, why would you begin with such a lengthy, detailed backstory? Um, I want to give you like three kind of, kind of contextual reasons why this might be the case. First, there's the purpose of ancient genealogies. Right? To us today, we, we, don't, we don't have as big of an emphasis on genealogies. Maybe your family is different 
different, but, but by and large, our Western culture is not as preoccupied with it. Um, but they're super common, right? Especially in ancient Near East, Semitic cultures and stuff like that. Um, and, and only rarely, though, in these cultures do they, pre- do they preserve, like, strict biological ancestry. Um, but these, geolog- these genealogies serve purposes, right? They, they want to show the identity of the person and confirm this king, especially this would be at the beginning of, like, the stories of ancient kings or emperors. This king is indeed who he says that he is, um, they would demonstrate this person's credentials to power, right? I deserve to be in this position of power because I come from this person who came from this person who came from that person. Um, it can demonstrate the, the, the ownership of property, right? So even if you're not a king, right? I own this piece of land because my father owned this piece of property who inherited from my grandfather and on down the line. Um, um, they would also indicate people's character. Oftentimes, genealogies were meant to kind of embellish or, or magnify a person's character, particularly someone who is a king, right? And so these genealogies would be sort of somewhat creatively crafted, right, to, to make sure that they were indicating this person is really someone special. Now, that's the, the bigger, broader category, right? Matthew's not unique in writing one of these. They were just super common all over the place. Specifically for Matthew... What Matthew is doing is he's illustrating that Jesus is a sort of a new Moses who's bringing a new exodus and is forming a new kind of Israel, a new kind of people of God. This is throughout his entire book. So this is him setting the stage. Uh, A helpful helpful tip for reading Matthew in general is to remember that he's writing primarily to Jews. He's writing primarily to people who have all of these names in the backs of their minds already. They grew up hearing these stories. They grew up believing in what God had done through their ancestors and for their ancestors. And so for them, beginning with a genealogy like this would just be rather quite compelling. Now, for our purpose today, I think the reason to start with this genealogy is because what we can see from the past informs how we experience the present and it shapes our hope for the future. If we can look at the past of what God has done and how he put family together, then that that changes how we experience being a part of his family now in the present day. And it gives us hope for what this future family of God is going to look like. So the past, present, and future of God's family, as we're gonna see, the past, present, and future of God's family is a redeemed mixed bag. This is how I describe it. It's a mixed bag of people once you really get into these stories, but it's redeemed and it's turned into something different and beautiful. Now, I want to look at three kind of noteworthy aspects of Matthew's genealogy, right? Three kind of interesting aspects of how he put it together. Um, Much like everybody else in the ancient Near East, uh, Matthew engaged in what I would call like editorializing, right? He, he was an editor. He was putting this together very specifically and for very specific reasons. So, so he would have certain omissions. There would be people that he just left out. Most notably, there are four kings in the lineage of Israel that he just left out, right? And, and this would work because you could say so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, but the way they would use the word son could sometimes actually refer to like a grandson or something, so it tracks. Um, he, would, he would do some editorial omission. He would also then do editorial inclusion, he would pull other people into 
the lineage and into the genealogy that otherwise just maybe wouldn't need to be mentioned, wouldn't demand mentioning if we were just trying to keep track of generation after generation. And he does these things for very important purposes. The first thing, and we'll, we'll just skate over this one a little bit quickly, but I think it's really key and important here, is that Matthew is preoccupied with King David. What, on the surface of this, we seem like, oh, this is the genealogy of Jesus. But if you're actually counting, it's the genealogy of David. David is mentioned five times. He's mentioned five times in this short two and a half minutes. And, and this is important actually throughout all of Matthew's gospel, even from this very beginning. He's painting a picture in talking about King David. He's painting a picture of what God's kingdom looks like. And we are a kingdom people. And so even for us, this is, this is our story. In emphasizing a king, we understand what his kingdom looks like. So in verse one, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David. Verse six, he's got it twice. He says, Jesse, the father of King David. And then he says, David was the father of Solomon. 17, he says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, and then 14 from David to the exile in Babylon. To first century Jews, hearing, hearing David's name mentioned more than any other name in this short two and a half minutes would have been noteworthy, right? In the ancient Near East, I don't know if you know this, but like when they would have like papyrus scrolls or whatever, when they would write these things down, um, they, couldn't, they didn't have like a highlight function, right? They didn't have bold. They, they couldn't like control I, italics, right? Like the way that they would emphasize something, they wouldn't even write in all caps, like they're shouting. They, they, they would repeat themselves, Right? So anytime in the Old Testament and even a lot of the New Testament, especially something like Matthew, when we hear something repeated, it's because that's the thing in bold, that's the thing in italics, that's the thing that's highlighted. So he's emphasizing here kingship, kingship, kingship. Um, I mentioned that it's a major emphasis in Matthew. Matthew mentions King David more than any of the other gospels. Matthew mentions David 17 times. Uh, Luke comes in a cloak second. This is just nerdery, right? Maybe you don't care about this. Um, uh, Luke comes in a close, close second. Luke mentions King David 11 times. Mark lags way behind and only mentions King David seven times. And David appears to barely be on John's radar at all, he mentions, at all because he mentions him twice. So Matthew has this huge emphasis on kingship, what it means that this Messiah is going to be king. So the point of all this under David is simply this, is that this genealogy first of all, is it's about much more than simply the family line of an important person. We could view it that way. And perhaps if we were not Jesus followers, we could just view that as like a historical account and like, oh, okay, isn't that interesting? Somebody kept, tra- kept track of all these people. But it's more than the simply the family line of an important person. It's all about the family line of God's own son and how actual human beings played a part in as we'll see in a few minutes. And it's about how how God is putting together this family that's going to live together in his kingdom under the rule of his son. So we can't lose this, that this is about the king who is coming. So that's the first thing. Matthew's preoccupied with King David. The second thing to point out is that Matthew does not cancel questionable characters. Now, this is not entirely true. Two of, at least two of the kings that he omits from there were really horrible kings, right? So you might expect, if you're a really terrible king, you might just kind of get conveniently forgotten, 
and left out of something. But on the whole, Matthew does not cancel questionable characters that are in the line of Jesus. And this is important because many ancient kings, if you'd imagine that you were having a, a, a genealogy written of yourself, and if you keep in mind that one of the points of genealogies was to reaffirm one's character and one's importance and one's prominence, you're only going to want to include people that make you look good. Does that make sense? Like, you know your family. You know the crazy uncle that you would just kind of conveniently leave out of the family tree if you could, right? Maybe you're the crazy uncle that somebody left out of the family tree. No judgment there. There's good news for you if you are. Sit with me for a minute. There's good news for you. But that's not what happens in Matthew, right? Again, with the exception of the couple of these kings. Is Matthew leaves them in. Now, there's a handful of notable, like really good people at least in terms of the stories that we can read in the Old Testament, a bunch of these people are good. Jacob was a pretty good father overall. I mean, like, gosh, if you're gonna have 12 kids, like, I just think you get like a pass. You're good, right? Um, Boaz, he was a really upstanding guy, if you know the story of Boaz. Jesse, the father of David, he seemed like a, he seemed like a pretty good man as well. Um, in terms of the kings, Uzziah was a really, really good king. Hezekiah was a good king who instituted these like major uh, religious reforms and turned the whole people of Israel back to God and to Yahweh and to, in a really faithful kind of way. And on and on and on and on. A bunch of these names are really worth knowing and reading their stories as, as good examples. Uh, but there's also uh, uh, more than a few questionable individuals who very well could have been justified in being omitted, Right? that Matthew is the writer, this really could have been like, let's just not mention so-and-so, right? Um, and some of these are kind of heavy hitters. So some of these he kind of had to keep in. But I think that they're wonderful examples to us of how God's family was and is and always will be a bit of a mixed bag. So right out the gate, he mentions a guy named Abraham. You guys ever read the story of Abraham? Right? Um, bonus, if, you, if you're following us online and you're, you're following along with the program, or if you guys want to look in the program, I added in this morning um, some like bonus reading notes, right? So if you want to go and read some of these stories, I encourage you guys to go read some of these stories. You can read about Abraham in Genesis 12 through 25. Abraham, who was like the patriarch of the patriarchs, he was kind of where all of this really started, where God was forming a people for himself that would eventually fill out the whole earth, right? It starts with him. He was a total mixed bag. He was always up and down in terms of his morality or, or his like street smarts um, or his faithfulness to his family and his faithfulness to God, right? He was faithful when God called him to, to leave his homeland and settle in a faraway place. He said, okay, I trust you, God, I'm going. But then in the process of this, not just once but twice, he lied about Sarah being his wife, right? Which I don't know about you guys, but like, this, this is not like upstanding character, right? If I was Jesus, I'd be a little bit embarrassed, like, oh yeah, the dude that like couldn't admit that this woman's his wife, right, is in my lineage. Quite nearly got them in some serious trouble. Um, he believed God and it's credited to him as righteousness. This is kind of echoed throughout the Bible in a number of places. He believed God when God said that he would have a son, even though he was really, really old and past years and his wife was barren and all of this, he believed God and it says it was credited to him as righteousness. But then Abraham, along with his wife, Sarah, they, they grew impatient with God's timing and so decided to have a child via Sarah's um, servant, Hagar, right? Well, I will, we'll make this happen. You know how kids are made, right? 
Then after the kid is born, they later kick them out of the house when the like interpersonal tensions got too, got too tough, right? So Abraham himself was always kind of up and down and back and forth. Um, King David, this is noteworthy too, because King David, again, being mentioned five times in this, King David was also a bit of a mixed bag. You can read about him in 1 Samuel 16 through 31, and then pretty much all of 2 Samuel, chapters 1 through 24. Huge chunk of the Old Testament is dedicated to stories of David. He was the greatest of all Israel's kings. He was, he was like a hugely successful warrior. He was a poet and a musician. We have tons of the Psalms that we even pray today and that are turned into contemporary songs today were written by him. Um, he has the distinction of being called a man after God's own heart. Like, I mean, that's pretty, like, high praise to be called a man after God's own heart. Um, but he was also an adulterous murderer, <laughs> right? Like, go big or go home, David, you know? It wasn't like, you know, he lied sometimes, you know? It, it just, he went all the way. His wife was even mentioned in this genealogy right? Which we'll get to that in a few moments as well. So David, the greatest of all the kings, the one whom the lineage of the Messiah as reigning king comes from him, was a mixed bag. King Solomon, his son, was also pretty sketchy. You can read about him, especially in 1 Kings 1 through 11. If you're not familiar with those stories, I encourage you to read it. Um, note, noteworthy for his wealth, right? His immense wealth that people from all over the world would come to see him. Now, it was noteworthy for his wisdom. People would come and seek wisdom from him as well. Many of the Proverbs that we have in the book of Proverbs are attributed to him. But later in his life, he turned away from being faithful to Yahweh. This great kingdom that God had united under King David began to disintegrate towards the end of his reign and started this downward spiral of the entire nation. Uh, then we get to a couple of like really terrible dudes that are actually mentioned in here. Um, Manasseh, you can read about him in 2 Kings 21 along with his son Ammon. Manasseh was decidedly one of the worst kings Israel ever had. Um, right on the heels of his father Hezekiah's reforms, I, I mentioned Hezekiah a few minutes ago, some of the greatest religious reforms that Israel ever saw, right on the heels of that when his son takes over. Now, this might be because his son became king when he was 12. Dave, uh, Garrett just turned 13. Like, I don't know, you know? Great kid, but I don't know if he needs to be running a nation, right? But so Manasseh takes over the nation and, and immediately took the whole people backwards into polytheistic worship, right? They began worshiping the idols and engaging in all the practices of the idols of the surrounding nations. He began violently persecuting the, the prophets of Yahweh who would come and would try to bring correction to him and to the people. They would just eradicate them. His son Ammon, right on the heels of this, lived and ruled in exactly the same deplorable ways his father had done. And, and despite future attempts right after him at reform, that this horrible unfaithfulness eventually resulted in the Babylonian exile, right? Of Babylon coming in and just utterly decimating the people and carrying them away into exile. So we get this crazy thing that in this story of the Messiah, is all manner of people, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everybody in between. Which is partly to say, at least at this point, that that bodes well for you and me. It bodes well for you and me if we find ourselves in the family of God. And it's really easy 
it's really easy to feel like we don't belong. It's really easy to look at the ways that we fail, to look at our shortcomings, to, to dwell upon our own pasts and think, oh, I don't, I don't belong. Walk in here on Sunday mornings. I have a feeling more than a couple of you probably walked in here this morning even and felt like, I don't belong here. I don't know that I belong here. You feel, for whatever reason, you've let yourself feel less than, you feel unwelcome, you feel undeserving, like you don't merit it. But God says, come on in. Look, my own family history is a bunch of sketchy people. You fit right in. You fit right in. This is the grace of God. If anyone ever tells you that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and vindictiveness and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace, tell them to go reread some of these stories. He's always been a God of grace. He has always been a God of love and forgiveness and patience and redemption. So Matthew's preoccupied with King David. He, he does not cancel questionable characters. He, he just leaves them in there. And then the third interesting thing about what Matthew does is he includes five women. And this is interesting for several reasons. Um, most, most notably because in ancient Near East, it was always, family lineage was always tracked through the male line. Highly patriarchal, right? Now to us, to us these days, we, we can get really defensive and antagonistic against that. And we might see Matthew including women and go, yeah, well, of course. But the thing is, is that even in the first century when, when he was writing this gospel, no one was saying, of course, right? It's also noteworthy that Matthew, along with all of the other disciples, have the women being the first ones who see the risen Jesus, right? Women who were viewed as less than, not as important. They couldn't own land. They couldn't have property. Their, their word wouldn't stand up in court, they weren't held as trustworthy. In many cases, they were viewed as property themselves, right? Here, Matthew already starts inserting them into the story to make sure that they're not forgotten. He is extending, we have this trajectory of inclusion that he's, he's in, in putting into the mix here of transcending cultural barriers, transcending racial barriers, transcending gender barriers. That all are included and all are important. So we get these five women mentioned. Tamar, you can read about her in Genesis 38. Rahab, you can read about in Joshua 2 and then Joshua 6 if you skip ahead. Uh, Ruth, she gets a whole book by her name. It's pretty killer. Um, Bathsheba, who's not mentioned by name here, she's only mentioned as Uriah's wife, right? Uriah was the one that was murdered so that David could do his adultery thing with Bathsheba. And then we get to Mary. Matthew 1 through 2 and Luke 1 through 2. Now, in the ancient Near East, to be fair, it was not entirely uncommon for women to be included. Um, it wasn't unknown, but, but Matthew does take it to like a whole other level. And three thoughts on why maybe Matthew includes these women. And I think this is powerful. And I think the trajectory of these, these things is noteworthy for us. Um, first, he includes them as indicators of the worldwide family that God was creating. Now, keep in mind this. There's a lot of noteworthy women in the Old Testament. And in the lineage of Jesus, 
that do not get a mention, right? Sarah doesn't get a mention. Abraham's wife, and on and on and on. But what we get here is five women who were all foreigners. Well, actually four, because it doesn't count Mary. But these first four women, they were all foreigners, showing that Jesus the Messiah was coming to bring in the Gentiles as well. That even his own lineage already includes the nations. Tamar was an Aramean. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba was a Hittite. None of those four women were even Jewish. But Matthew, the good Jew, writing his Jewish genealogy to a bunch of Jews who were gonna read this, made note that these women who were not even a part of their people were a part of their people. They didn't have the bloodline that they so prized and valued, yet even the Messiah said, they're family. So he's showing this worldwide family of God that he was creating. Second, Matthew does this as a statement in favor of the powerless. It's a statement in favor of the powerless over and against the rich and the powerful. One scholar suggests that each of these Old Testament women, these four, were socioeconomically and religiously powerless, yet they manifest faith when the men in their respective stories do not. It's fascinating. There's men in their stories who should have been the faithful ones. Yet these women prove themselves to be good and upstanding. This is also the central theme of the Magnificat, Mary's, Mary's song that she sings when she encounters Elizabeth and the baby in her wombs, right? All that. Of God vindicating the powerless who are being oppressed by the powerful. And third, he includes these women as examples of how God uses the least likely for his great purposes. Another scholar points out that I read this week that each of them, they had something odd or extraordinary and in some cases even scandalous about her union with her male partner in the story. And yet each played an important role in God's plan, sometimes even by their own initiative and at great personal risk. They were used by God. And all four of these Old Testament women, I think Matthew picks these because they're such great examples of they foreshadow Mary's role as an unwed mother whom God uses for his divine plan. God works in unusual ways and through unlikely And this is the good news for us today, guys. As we wrap up, as it was with Jesus' genealogy, so it is with his family today, and so will it be with all the generations to come. The past and the present and the future of God's family is redeemed, mixed, bag. Guys, so many that we might be surprised to be welcomed into the ongoing genealogy of Christ will be our brothers and sisters. And here's the hope and the invitation for you today. If God was not ashamed to put these family members down in writing in his holy scriptures, then neither is he ashamed of welcoming you and me into his family. If this entire mixed bag can be redeemed, 
to bring the Messiah into this world, then as that family tree continues to be built, then it can include you and me. Why don't you stand with me?